0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: This is episode 136 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have some old salty riders from Ireland. They're not so old. And we've got a beautiful man from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dr. William Miller, all to talk about horses and the carryover to humans as well. This is Debbie Lauks and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the first and the 15th of the month, and I have my trusty producer with me today. How are you, Jen?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
1: Good. You always show up. It's so nice. I always know right time, right at the top. You are there for us. How are you for so many people on the whole network, on the Horse Radio Network? I tell you. Do you have an assistant that chases you around and says, stay on time or anything like that?
2: I have Google calendars. Oh, yeah. (laughs) On your phone, right? On my phone, on the six different computers that surround me all day long. (laughs) You're regimented. I try to be. We we really do have to s- spend a lot of time scheduling things because now that the Horse Radio Network has got a little bigger, we actually have three different producers, myself, Glenn, and Jemmy, mm-hmm. and um, we each produce in separate places, and we have, what, 14 or 17 or show, so shows wow. that we do. So it's a lot of scheduling. Yeah. Yeah. That-
1: is but I always know that you. I'm the only one I know about is mine. So that's right, and that's all you need it's to know about. Easy for me to remember. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's wonderful that you're always at the other end of the line. I really appreciate it. because I mean this episode was really interesting. I got to do these on uh, remotely. Let's call that's it because it was right. Went, yeah,
2: you were an I'm independent recording person.
1: A little indie, right? I'm yes. like a little. You know, I got this tiny little microphone. It's got a tiny little foam cover on it. It's hilarious, actually. <laughs> I feel like I'm a mini podcaster is what I am. Yeah. But it was fun because I got to go out in the field and um, interview Claire Conahan and Darren Egan. And they're from Ireland. You're just going to love to hear their stories. And we rambled a bit. It was really fun. But we tightened it up for you guys. So don't worry about it. But it was it was really fun to hear these two old souls that had been working together like when they were in their teens, really young. And then they're back and they're, they're you know, they're not millennials, but they're not much older than that either. But it's a bit of a reunion of sorts and really fun to hear their background in the thoroughbred industry and riding. And then William Miller, which is a completely different departure, but horses hold them all together. William Miller came out from Albuquerque, New Mexico to help us with the movement. And uh, you're going to hear a little bit about his story. Why is a doctor who's Involved in therapy, you might get the connection here, but also in change behavior. Why, does he, why is he drawn to horses? It's really fun.
2: Neato keen, and I can't wait to hear it all. And we're going to do that right after we hear from our title sponsor, the fine folks at Omega Fields.
3: Hi, Joe Camp here to share about Omega Fields. Omega Fields exists to help you keep your first promise to the horses you love, to care for them well. Nutrition is the foundation of a healthy life and supports all the activity that brings you and your horse so much joy. Omega-3s from flax are the cornerstone of that foundation. So, coupled with the finest ingredients and in their proprietary pure-glean flax stabilization process, they created Omega Horseshine, Omega Horseshine Complete, Omega Nibblers, low sugar and starch, Omega Antioxidant and Proventum Probiotic Soft Treats. Thousands of horses are experiencing a vibrant life with the help of Omega Fields products, including all of ours, a part of helping you keep your promise to your friends. Nutrition for a healthy life isn't just their slogan. It's their purpose.
1: Claire Conahan and Darren Egan met when they were very young and working in the horse industry, and then got separated as you would do over the oceans from Ireland to the United States. Well, they're back in the United States now, and they're working together again at Flagazup Farms. They both have backgrounds in riding thoroughbreds and training thoroughbreds. Darren is a new rider at Flagazette Farms, and we actually caught up with him on his very first day of riding. Claire Conahan is the Certified Instructor Teaching at the Monty Roberts International Learning Center. And we're going to get to listen in a little bit on their stories of working together and how they feel about horses. Well, welcome, Darren Egan and Claire Conahan. I'm so happy to have you here. Darren just came in today to Flag is Up Farms. Literally is starting work tomorrow, but we thought we'd put him to work this afternoon <laughs> and to tell a little story so we have a little perspective. And I understand that Claire introduced you to Flagstaff Farms. Is that right?
4: She did, yeah. I seen um, on her Facebook that she was advertising for some riders. And uh, I've been wanting to come back out to California, especially to here. So I jumped on the opportunity.
1: Fantastic. Well, yeah. we can hear you from Ireland originally. Where are you from?
4: County Longford in Ireland.
1: Longford in Ireland. Did you
4: grow up with horses? No, I, I, I was introduced to horses at about 10 years of age and uh, it was pretty much love at first sight. As soon as I got on the back of a horse, I didn't want to get off it. Um, so it's been uh, quite a journey so far to get to here.
1: Yes, it is. Now you're about 20 now? Or? 27. 27. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, I bet you're a little bit older. So there okay. There you go. So you've had a career yeah. in horses. Yes. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would love that. So, Claire, how did you and Darren meet? Um,
5: So, back in 2008,
4: 2009, or something Mm -hmm. like that
5: there, um, I was working in a racing yard for Kevin Prendergast, and Darren was the apprentice there at the time, that's where he done his apprenticeship, so that's how we met
4: initially. Were you an
5: apprentice then? No, I was just riding the horses. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have that ambition.
4: (laughs) No. I I got sent to Kevin's from uh, the... Uh, jockey school in ireland the racing academy um so i went there from the racing academy and i stayed on afterwards when the course finished and that's where i served a year and a half of my apprenticeship uh, before i moved to england to pursue a career over there
1: and where did you did you end up at a trainer's barn or did you actually end up the tracks
4: uh, over there it's much different you, you you go to trainers barns you don't there's there's no exercising on racetracks tracks. Uh, just some sometimes it would have racetrack breezes. Um, but no, it's not like over here where you, you go to a racetrack and you train and you're, you're stable there for months at a time. It's it's very, very different.
1: Mm. So tell me a little bit about your experience with the horses when you were in Ireland and you were both at the same barn, same yard. Yeah. Tell us some stories. We, uh, want, to, we want to see the green hills and the and, and smell the Irish bread cooking, you know.
4: <laughs> okay.
5: Well, as Darren said, it was so much different there than it is here. Um, you'd have like a string of 18 to 25, something like mm-hmm. that there, riding out at one time. So the yearlings would come in around October time to Kevin's, and they would go down to the bottom yard and get started. So then they'd come up to the top yard then to us, and we'd all go out in a big String of horses and go out to into the middle of his gallop. There was like a big grass field, and uh, you'd have a pony horse riding in front, and then everybody on the yearlings behind, just cantering them around figure of eights and stuff. I like got there, and you'd do that maybe for a week or so, and a then a couple hit. of
4: weeks, yeah. And then take them on the <clears throat> he had his own private race at gallop, and we would take them out there then and get them going on the gallop and, and get them ready to start breezing. Um, but the way they would do it over there is they breeze five, six, seven, eight horses at a time. So every breeze is like a mini race. So the horse learns much faster um, what he needs to do when he goes to a racetrack. So um, it's less strenuous on their mind and on their body, on their joints, because you're not having to train them as hard, you're just educating them. Um, So they they ended up, most of the horses, with a pretty level head. They got a good start in life, and uh, yeah, they were a pleasure to ride.
5: Mm. Yeah, Kevin's was great in the sense that when you rode the horses out in the morning, from like you got on them, you get on them in the yard. Somebody legs you up, you walk out in a big string, so the colts are always in front and the fillies behind, and the older horses sometimes in front and it's done in different strings, or, like different groups. But um, he'd ride all the way up the lane, which is like a, a street at least here. at
4: least a mile, be a mile, it's probably walk, a mile, yeah, in
5: walk, and then back down to the gallop and then you'd canter around the gallop a few Mm -hmm. times, and then he'd walk them off again. And Kevin was in his 70s, wasn't he? Um, I think
4: he was. I think he was 68 when I got there. Yeah, so he would
5: have been close to 70, and he walked with every string of horses up and down, Mm -hmm. and and then he'd be out in the middle of it. You know, he was so fit. And then on work days, we had to ride over to the cura. So the cura was, like, how many miles away? Probably three,
4: four miles, at least, cross-country, crossing roads. and railway tracks going underneath them and
5: this is
4: the Kura of Kildare, Kildare yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so
5: it's a it's a massive training ground and there's like so there's roads into it as well so there's traffic then there's sheep everywhere there's a railway in the yeah. middle of it and when we'd be brave enough some us would go under the bridge while the train was going past and get the horse out <laughs> past yeah. and there was one bridge was higher than the other.
4: Mm, one real low and real narrow.
5: <laughs> You'd literally be down on the horse's back, head low, to get it onto the lower one. And it was the shortcut home. Yeah, yeah. So,
6: yeah.
5: <laughs> if you're on a quieter one, you might go that way. <laughs> but Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun over there. Um, Kevin was hilarious whenever, you know, sometimes traffic would go past us too fast and he'd take off down the road in the car After them, him yeah. to tell them off mm-hmm. for scaring his horses. Yeah, yeah, so. There was
4: this one time where uh, we were riding back from the curry. the horses had already breezed, and it was the last group of horses to come back. Because like I said, when they, breeze, when they breeze in groups of five and six, then th- those five and six would walk back to the, to the barn, and the, the jockeys and the exercise riders who would ride work, they would get on the next five or six and go down and breeze them.
1: So what do you think that did for the horses, though? Because here the horses are often in stalled and then out to the track and back into the stall. I mean, it's not as bad as Hong Kong. I've heard they take them up and down in elevators and right. take them right to the track. So mm-hmm. so I'm not complaining. But um, but it is. do you think they grow up a little bit more normal, more
4: natural? They definitely have a sounder mind. Mm. They're more mature in their mind. They can handle stress a lot better. You know, they can handle stressful situations without completely losing their mind. Um,
5: Well, I suppose they're eased into it a bit more, too. Like, you know, they're not... Like, if you think about it, if the horses over here are kind of put on their own a bit more in the beginning, Mm. they don't have the comfort of the bunch, you know, together, whereas ours do and you know they get that education from very early on mm-hmm. that they're all together and you Turned know out
4: in big herds yeah because
5: yeah. that can mean a lot in a race big really time. can't it you know because mm-hmm. you find a lot of horses are they either want to be tailed off and they'll pick them up or they want to be out in front but once they get into a bunch they just lose heart and they want to go backwards mm-hmm. you know so it really helps in
4: that sense too mm-hmm.
1: so you're, you're six or eight out together you said or oh anything any up to
4: 25 up
1: to 25
5: yeah.
4: 25 going yeah. At the same time, or when there would be breezing, they would, they would, everybody would walk around in a big circle at the top of the gallop, and then Kevin would pick what horse and what rider would go down to work together, um, and then when they would come back, they would just switch off the hot horses to the exercise riders who rode them over there, and they would just ride them back.
1: It's wow, a huge staff, you had people everywhere,
4: yeah, yeah and stuff. over there like you you in that barn especially you would only ride three maximum four horses a day, mm-hmm. but you're spending an hour and thirty minutes to two hours on each one, so nice. all of that walking and all of that time spent with the horse it 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 just benefits them so much, mm-hmm. you know because it's at the end of the day we're trying to get them to do something that they're not naturally meant to do you know they we said they're born to run or whatever but you know it's it's very different than a horse running down the field chasing each other than 10 horses coming out of a gate and going to the wire and trying to beat that each is, other yeah that is so, so less natural yeah it's it's a lot less natural um, so do you
1: feel like that that um, mentally they mature at the rate that they would have matured because you say you get some early mm-hmm. and you can see which ones are ready for the races.
4: Exactly. And, some and, that's, back and that's where the horsemanship part really comes in because mm-hmm. it's not about saying, I have a two-year-old, he's going to run here. It's about saying, I, I have a, a racehorse and I'm going to get him to the races when he's ready. Mm-hmm. Because when you start, from what I've seen, when you start putting a, a date that this horse has to be somewhere, at a certain stage it, it, it you're putting a lot of pressure on that you don't have to. You know, just instead of training the horse as you find him, um, and then he'll get ready when he's ready instead of twisting the screw too tight and that's when a lot of mental problems yeah. occur. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah it can be physical too, especially Definitely.
4: with the stress mm-hmm. and the
1: anxiety yeah. and everything
5: too. Well all the walking and stuff they would get back home. It's really good for their it's joints. Good, you know, yeah. it loosens mm-hmm. them out a lot more. Know that they're ready to go out and canter. Their muscles yeah. are warmed up. They canter, and then their muscles are cooled down before they go to their stall. Mm-hmm. And in cabins, it was great too because every horse, once you finished riding him, you took him back to his stall, took off his saddle, put a he- head collar on him and a lead rope, and you took him out to a round pen and he had a roll, and then back and groomed and into his stall. And that was their routine for them. And his reason for that was so they didn't get cast in they the stalls. In you know, they stall. wouldn't want to go back rolling. Mm. So it was. They really had, you know, they had a long, you know, session as yeah. opposed to
4: fifteen minutes, right? Yeah, over yeah, here, I like I, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people over here. The goal is try to get the horse to the racetrack as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for what reason is unknown to me, but uh, you're just you're just taking steps backwards when you start approaching the job like that because
5: it's like Monty's saying. Act like you've got all day. It'll take you fifteen minutes. And act exactly. like you fifteen minutes. It'll take, it'll you take all, all day. day. It's mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, that day.
5: that's it's right. the same with the horses. Yeah. So there's
1: a lot of great horses that come out of Ireland.
4: There was another one called Red Maloney. He won the.
1: Oh yeah, he
5: was a gelding, and he had a goat in his stable with him. So the goat lived on the farm, or on the yard, and he used to walk around and follow the feed bin. He Till was, he was on his knees, he was so fat they had to start starving him. Yeah. But the other thing he done was, he wrecked a load of cars. A, <laughs> lot, of,
4: a lot of new cars, he would see his reflection. And of course he, yeah, straight away he's up in his two back legs and smack. And his head, they were head all, batting all the cars. Yeah, they yeah. were all like really expensive, like top of the range, German luxury cars that all the jockeys would have. And they were the ones he was going for because they were the shiniest. Yeah. <laughs>
5: In <laughs> our cars he wouldn't touch.
4: No, not at all. Because
5: I think he he went for one of Kevin's cars one time mm-hmm. as well. He got out yeah. his car too. I think that was the end of it. They had to, had to keep him in at that time. But Red Maloney was um, a bit of a warrior. He was a wind sucker as well, I think. He and was he was actually due to go to the Melbourne Cup at one stage and they had to get a passport for Gilly. That was the name of the goat. To, to
4: the goat, yeah, yeah.
5: Yeah, and they used to turn him out with the goat and everything. And he lived in the stall with them, the two of them, but he had the feed pot together and it was
4: just... And he was a good horse. He, yeah. he the, uh, not Guinness, didn't he win the, not the Guineas, didn't he win the St. Ledger? Did he win the St. Ledger? I'm not sure. Did he he, did. Do
1: you remember him before the goat? Like, do you remember why they got the goat? No, I remember the
5: goat just being with him.
4: He, was, um, he could be a bit of a savage. He, I, a, I,
1: I was going to say.
5: No, yeah. th- he was more of a warrior, I think it was.
1: He needed companionship. Even
5: either. that goat went to the races with him. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, it was so
1: funny. I didn't know they had to get a passport. But the only reason
5: he was going to have to get a passport is because he was going to be going to the Melbourne Cup. But for whatever reason, then he didn't end up going. Or did he go to Hong Kong at one stage? No, he didn't. Must have been to Hong Kong.
4: Yeah, he didn't go anywhere.
5: But a lot as well, too, to sort of sweeten the deal, too. You have the babies, which a lot of the ones come here for starting and stuff. So you can start them from the beginning in the right way, which makes. Don't get me wrong, I I love
4: working with a horse that has a problem. Uh, Because it doesn't have a horse problem, it has a human problem. Exactly, Darren. So instead of trying to make the horse what to do what you want him to do, I just like to observe the horse and see what he's doing and what, what he's got going on in his head and take it from there. You know, I, I see a lot of people, i seen just this summer, some people had, had purchased a very expensive yearling for over $400,000. Um, and then I see it a couple of weeks later, and it doesn't want to go to the track, it's rearing up. It's booking its rider off. They can't get even a rider on it. And I'm like, this is just what ridiculous. Yeah. This is just ridiculous. And it was just a a, a consequence of bad horsemanship and, and a rushed job. Mm-hmm. They were in a hurry and they didn't have the correctly qualified staff to do like uh to break the horses properly, they wouldn't drive them. They wouldn't put them on the long lines. You had to break them in a stall. You put the saddle bridle on, and you get on them. And that's, right. that's all you got. So it's, uh, number one, very dangerous. Number two, it's, it's, uh, not very educational for the horse. You're teaching them how to do all the things you don't want them to do. Um, yeah. So just to be able to be here and, and, and enjoy the break in the training process and enjoy looking at a horse and saying okay he doesn't need to go to track today he's going to go in the round pan or he's going to go and we're going to do figure eights in the arena or we're just going to take a trail right around the property because sometimes that's all it takes mm-hmm. uh, but people are in this mindset where he has to go to track he has to train he has to train he has to train and usually that's the problem he's doing too much training so
1: so you're going to supervise this guy now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Make sure he lives up to the name I give him to your mother. That's so. <laughs> right. I
1: know.
5: She, she oh, was no, reading I the take, resume. So.
4: I take pride in my work, for I sure. I bet you do. Mm-hmm. I bet you
1: do. It's going to be fun. And my goal is to get you changing the term breaking to, to starting. starting. Yeah.
4: Okay. <laughs> okay. That's my
1: goal. You might do that by
4: tomorrow, I know. But yeah. We, we can start a few. Yeah, you can <laughs> There you go. I know. That's just one
1: of the campaigns that we... You know, it, it's just a little tweak. Psychological. But if, yeah, mm-hmm. but if, it, if you keep hearing it come out and go in the head, you know, it's just, it's just one of those little domination things that I think we could fade out of mm-hmm.
4: at this point. But, yeah, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely not the right term.
1: No, it's just, no. it's a universal term. It's, yeah, so. it's
4: been used for so many yeah. years, really, oh, isn't it? It's it generations and generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah. But it's fascinating to
5: me, like, that people that get into this industry, like, when you started, <laughs> like Darren said earlier, It was love at first sight with horses. And with most people, as a little boy or a little girl, that's what it is. You Mm -hmm. love horses. And somewhere along the way, you end up in a yard or wherever you are, and that's just how they do it. And that's the words you hear. This is just how it's done. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is.
4: This is how we do it here.
5: Yeah, and people accept that. And that baffles me because, you know, no matter what horses I worked with, you know, when you got results with a horse, it was never through bullying them mm-hmm. ever and people would say to you things like I remember one time for instance you remember Mark of an Angel the little chestnut mm-hmm. filly I had mm-hmm. and she was the the term they used was a screw loose that's what they called Life her
4: was there, wasn't she
5: no she was Mark, Mark of a Steen
4: oh Mark of a Steam, yeah
5: okay. and um, when they brought her over to the her cur- to, cur- to work nobody could ride her they had to walk her around and she would be in a lather of sweat before anyone even got on her so the stables got turned around anyway and one of my horses was sent home and I got given this filly and I thought, oh dear Lord, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to be killed. And all I'd done was I dropped her out the back and just softly just rid her and she was such a lovely filly, such a lovely moving filly. And uh, eventually anyway, I was able to ride her around walking while she was waiting to be ridden by the jockey. And one particular day, she was getting ready to go to the Galway Festival and Declan McDonough was... Getting ready to ride her, and as I put him up on her, was the walking him out to the track. He said, "Is she okay?" And I said, "Yeah, she's fine. Right, she seems really quiet in herself." He thought she was sick, so he went out on the track, and he rode her, and he came back, and he says, "I don't know what you're doing with this filly, but whatever it is, keep doing it." And Kevin does, or Declan doesn't give compliments, no. and Kevin said the same. The two of them both did. So anyway, this filly, she went to Galway, and she finished second in a really big race. Uh, it was a listed racer group, I can't remember. I'm terrible when it comes to the types of races. I'm more about the horse's mind than anything else. And uh, so afterwards, when I started riding her again, she'd had a couple of days off, and I started right back riding her again, and Deharn was actually here at the time. And uh, I said to Kevin, you know, he asked me how she was after the first day I rode her back. I says, I don't know. I says, I can't put my finger on it, but she's just not right. She's up on my hands, she just doesn't feel right. And his was... Uh, you know, like, you're annoying me, God, mm-hmm. you know, looking for things wrong. But that wasn't the case. And Sean, the backman, was there that day. And you and Sam were actually getting a lift home with me that evening, I think, back to Roombeg. And uh, I said to Sean, I said, do me a favor. I said, just run your hands on that filly and let me know if I, I think there's something wrong with her. So he told me, yeah, she's all wrong. or in her saccord area. And I told the head lad, I was going on holidays. I told the head lad what the back man told me, you know and so hey, that was, wasn't very friendly
4: this was tuesday <laughs> yeah
5: tuesday and they rode her wednesday and i was at the airport on thursday morning and got the call to say she'd broken her back leg and i was devastated i left i i went on ho- weeks holidays and i came back and i rode a horse and i left that morning i said enough so enough i just couldn't take it anymore <laughs> and then my filly rode in the mill she ran in the million samba school Two weeks later, and she finished second. I was at home watching it, going, "Oh my god, please don't win!" Because I stood to win (laughs) twenty thousand if I was still looking after her. But she came second, so it it didn't. But it was just so fun. It was so good to actually see her run so well that time. But it was just one of those things where girls don't know what they're doing. Mm. You're just annoying people, and but it like with that filly, I don't think it's right with her. And she'd ended up really good, but the ground was really heavy in Galway that time, and I think she must have pulled something in her back, and then ended up breaking her leg afterwards. So we can't change everything, and if we just throw a little pebble in the pond Mm -hmm. and try and change somebody's mind, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can change one or two people's mind, you're helping. You know, it's not, and you'll never save every horse. Mm -hmm. And I've had to learn that the hard way, and walk away sometimes when people are. And doing stuff that I'm not so happy with because I found a lot of the time when you go to try and intervene they get worse and I've seen people actually be harsher with horses in front of me because of my background with Monty and it's like yeah I'll show them, and I'm just going that's your that's on you I don't want anything to do that and I just walk away I don't rise to it because there's no point you know those people are doing I guess the best they know how to do because of Whatever reason, fear, yeah. ego.
4: My philosophy, and I've had this philosophy for a long time. People would ask me, you "Now, why? How can you ride that horse so well?" And uh, my philosophy always was: it's 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 in my trust of lack of control where I get control. It's not I have to be in control. It's I'm not in control at all. But here I am up on a horse. We got to get get the job done. So in, instead of I like to say, instead of having a wrestling match, I like to have a dance. That's my philosophy. That's
1: nice. Caballo Horse, and Rider, Carol, and Greg Giles, too, have been longtime supporters of the Horsemanship Radio, and we thought, you know what better way to show how their support goes than through the people who buy their boots. So we have this from Brenna Eldridge on a Facebook post. I could not be happier with my decision to transition my horse to barefoot and choosing Cavallo for his hook protection. I always thought my horse just had bad feet and that he would always be lame barefoot until I realized that I was enabling that dependency. By allowing his feet to adapt back to the way that they were naturally intended, his feet have become strong and he now seems perfectly comfortable barefoot. With the added weight of a rider on rough terrain, I invested in my first pair of Cavallo boots. I went with the Trek boots, and they fit him perfectly. I was able to do anything that I could do in metal shoes, and I have no longer stress over him losing a metal shoe and damaging his hoof when removed. The Cavallo boots have provided him greater shock absorbencies when riding on hard ground, and so far, whether it be on trails or in the arena, he seems extremely comfortable in his boots. I do a variety of riding, including trails, gaming, and drill, and I'm excited to get into the gaming season to put truly those boots to test I believe that in horsemanship you have to pick methods that make the most sense to you and for me that is the naturality of barefoot and the protection of the Cavallo boots Brynna Dr. Bill Miller witnessed a join-up with a horse and Monty Roberts about 25 years ago and immediately saw the parallels between a trainer giving a horse choices to learn and what he does helping people with choices to change their behaviors. Understanding addiction and its treatment has been a wonderful medium for pursuing Bill's fundamental interest in the psychology of change, for which most people are often ambivalent about. Dr. Miller served on the Faculty of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico for 31 years, where he served as the Director of Clinical Training, and co-founder of the Center on Alcoholism, Substance Abuse, and Addictions. His publications include over 50 books and 400 articles and chapters fundamentally interested in the psychology of change. He's focused in particular on the development, testing, and dissemination of behavioral therapies. Privilege and honor to be sitting down with William R. Miller today. Hi, Bill. Hi. Hi. Huh. Glad to have you. Peel you away a little bit. We're in the middle of an equine-assisted introduction to motivational interviewing. Yes. And people might ask, horses? Yeah. What's horses got to do with this equine-assisted introduction to motivational interviewing? Do you want to tell us why you're here a little bit?
0: Well, it started about 20 years ago when I, I was watching Monty working on a BBC program on public television. And I was struck by, he, he does the same thing I do, Now I'm a psychologist. I was working with people with addictions. But I was struck that he, he's doing the same thing I do, but he's doing it with horses. This, this isn't, isn't even species specific. And I was quite moved. Um, and I sent him some tapes of this method that we developed called motivational interviewing. And about a year later, I had a chance to meet him here at the, at the ranch, and, and he was equally impressed that, that what I do is the same as what he does, but I was doing it with people with alcohol and drug problems. and So we kind of recognized in each other the similarities of these two approaches, and that's led I've, I've been here a number of times doing motivational interviewing trainings, but it led to this particular training that Chris Robbins has organized to look at the similarities between join up and motivational interviewing. And I, I came just because I'm fascinated to, to talk about those things.
1: So you're kind, you're kind to have done that. We had you for the beginning of the week. We had two days of the movement. Yes. Which is the symposium that we put together Our our goal for that, our mission for that, was to point out those qualities of horses Mm -hmm. that people have taken into other vocations besides just horse training or horse competitions. Mm -hmm. But we had several speakers, you being one, second year in a row um, Mm -hmm. of two years that we've done the movement. But maybe tell us a little bit briefly about what your talk was covering.
0: Well, to to me, the movement is about nonviolence about alternatives to domination and and uh, and violence and i was this year talking about uh, empathy the ability to tune into someone else's world and experience and see things from their perspective and doing that of course is moves away from violence violence becomes possible when you can depersonalize the other individual and say well they're they're not even human um, mm-hmm when you can join with them, when you can begin to see the world through their eyes, through their perspective, it makes a connection that that makes violence less likely. Likely.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Very nice. And it was a great talk. We'll be having that out um, on Vimeo eventually too. So Mm -hmm. we'll um, we'll give people an opportunity to actually get to see that in action. Mm -hmm. Then moving into this equine-assisted intro, to motivational interviewing maybe we should do this for people could you give us a, a definition uh, that you routinely give for motivational interviewing
0: yeah well that definition has changed over the years yeah. too but but fundamentally it's a way of having a conversation and so in that way it's like join up as well and the, the purpose of the conversation is to bring out the other person's motivation for and commitment to change so whatever the topic initially i was working in addictions but it very quickly spread into healthcare and then into corrections and then social work and dentistry and all kinds of fields cuz really it's about helping people to get through ambivalence whenever we're faced with needing to make a change we don't want to do that you know it's it would comfortable doing things the way we have been and yet for example if you get a diagnosis of diabetes there's some really important changes to make uh, that will determine the quality of your life and the length of your life and those aren't easy to do and in that kind of situation it's helping people to voice their own reasons for making those changes and to get to the place of saying yes that's what that's what i need to do so it was the same in that way as the addiction challenge of getting to a place of saying hey, i think i really need do need something do need to do something about my drinking or my or my drug use mm-hmm. well that that turns out just to be human nature that ambivalence is us mm-hmm. and it's a place you can get stuck for a long time you think about a reason to change and then you think about a reason not to change and then you stop thinking about it because it's kind of unpleasant mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a way of having a conversation that helps people keep thinking about it and moving in the direction of making positive changes on their own behalf.
1: So you've been here for a few days and you were finally offered the opportunity to do a join-up.
0: Yes, after 20 years. After 20 yeah.
1: years of never actually getting in the round <laughs> pin with a horse to mm-hmm. do that. But you'd seen a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I, I have was, indeed, yeah yeah you, you have you because mm-hmm. you've been here with your conferences and your your trainers mm-hmm. training the trainers yeah. before and watched the demonstrations. How is it different being in the round pen this time? well
0: it's it's quite amazing to have that experience having seen it so many times, but to actually have the conversation to to see immediately how my movement influences the horses' movement at at one point. Uh, you're supposed to stay behind the horse to be driving the horse away from you, and I I got a little ahead of the horse, and the horse turned right around and went the other direction. I said, now that's what I tell my therapist, that if you get ahead of your client's readiness to change, they're not coming with you. You know, that was the experience all through it, all through the join up of kind of asking the horse, "Will you come with me on this step? Will you come with me here? If I turn, will you will you turn with me and come along?" And that's so much like the experience of motivational interviewing as well, that we we try things out in the conversation and see if the person will take that step, will come along with this. I, I also was very aware of how useful it is to have someone standing up on the side of the round pen who can see what I don't see and make a suggestion. And that kind of coaching is some, is really important in learning motivational interviewing as well because in a way it's what you're not seeing that you need some help from a coach with just like learning tennis or learning a musical instrument or whatever somebody else listening to you or watching you can say now turn your wrist just a little bit now try it again and and that kind of coaching is how you learn complex skills
1: it is very hard to see what you're doing when you're inside your skin, especially yeah. in, in this. This it's almost like being in the Colosseum. You feel like a lion might come out <laughs> at you. It's you know, it's pretty intimidating. Did you get a little vertigo when you were first in there at no. all? No, no,
0: okay. no, and felt very safe to me. I didn't have that Coliseum oh good uh, sense about it. And the and the horses is, is giving you feedback constantly, of course. Uh, so you've got two good sources of feedback. There's what the horse is immediately saying, point, yes. "Oops, you did that one wrong," yes. um, uh, and then good suggestions coming from up on the side of the round pen that say, "Now try it back away just a little bit, 45 degrees." Now, okay, now, now speed up your your pace a little bit, and uh, that kind of immediate coaching is just how you learn tennis or a musical instrument or join up or a motivational yes. interview.
1: How did you feel with your physiology? Did you? F- Find yourself having to think about breathing down, or did that, or did you even think about
0: it? I didn't think about it until it was time for the moment of join up Mm -hmm. and knew then it was important to do that. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't really focused on breathing that much before. I have a daily meditation practice and I'm used to diaphragmatic breathing. And uh, so even when I walked into the round pen, I felt very comfortable. but that's a moment that, uh, when you're going to invite the horse to come to you that you close your posture, I learned that one, and and breathe out and just get relaxed and the horse joins you in that process of slowing down. And uh, the, the second time I did a join-up here, I turned away from the horse and walked toward the center and I, I didn't look back. And then when I finally turned around, the horse was right there on my shoulder, which was what a lovely... Experience and it—it's an experience of trust. Uh, It's emotional. Well, it's it's emotional for sure. And I know you work with veterans here, and I I think of the the courage of a of a veteran to, at that moment, turn their back on a thousand pound animal, and then experience the trust that's involved in that. It was very, very moving.
1: And I know your wife Kathy got to experience it too did she share a little bit about she it? She did and
0: and I think she's done four of them now she's <laughs> really really excited about it. She grew up on a farm but not with horses that much and it's it really touched her. She said the the first time she turned around to the horse at the moment of join up and and stroked its head she said it was like like touching a baby. It was like that mm-hmm. moment of connection.
1: Yeah, so innocent and trusting because mm-hmm. it's full trust that you have from the horse at that point. So yes. There's no reason other than trust to come to you.
0: That's right. That's yeah. right.
1: You don't have treats in your pockets or anything, nope. right? No, nope.
0: <laughs> And they don't have to do it. No.
1: They don't have to do it.
0: And it's motivational interviewing is like that too, that that we don't ask people to do things they don't want to do, but we help them move in the direction of wanting to make this change that's important for their health.
1: So that's an important training methodology not only for horses but also for people oh yeah
0: and i I said today in the workshop i think in a way maybe some of the most important things we teach is what not to do not not to push not to get ahead of the person's readiness not to lecture and advise and scold and warn and you know do all the things that we sometimes do trying to be helpful but in fact they push the person in the opposite direction mm-hmm. So learning what not to do, how not to get in the person's way, and instead invite them to find their own movement, their own energy, their own motivation for change, and take steps in that direction, that's
1: what it's about. Absolutely. It almost seems impossible, I, I imagine, at this point, to think that you could force a horse to do any of that.
0: Well, that's a big animal, but you, <laughs> but you also can't force people to change. And knowing that is really important even if you're a probation officer, and in some ways the, the world says you have to make people change, the truth is you can't make them change. But how you are with them makes all the difference in whether they change or not. But if, if I have in my head, I have to make these people stop drinking or stop using drugs, I go home feeling defeated at the end of the day and not very effective because people don't like to be controlled. And if they sense that you're trying to mess with them and you're trying to make them do something that they don't want to do, that doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. We thought in the addiction field that what you had to do was get in people's face and scold them and tell them what was wrong with them and, and uh, what they're supposed to do. But people don't take kindly to that usually of being told what's wrong with them and what they should do
1: differently. Mm-hmm. Really? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, no, I mean, we all know that. We
0: all know that.
1: It's true. Now, horses don't have egos. People do have egos. Do you feel like forcing them to change by shaming them and or even threatening, let's say, with jail or other penalties for doing their thing? Do you feel that that works or are there better ways in the long run that we could even, you know, start to shift to?
0: Well, I mean, punishment just isn't very effective in, in changing human behavior. You can threaten people into behaving as long as you have the whip, you know, exactly. as, as long as you're in control. But what happens then, as soon as you release people from jail, they tend to exert their freedom again and go right back to what they were doing before if you haven't done any work with them to find their own reasons to do something different from that. So, you know, can you coerce somebody through torture to do to do something well within limits? Yes, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of long lasting change no that that's that's not the way to inspire and encourage and cajole people to make positive changes in their lives
1: you've been a tremendous change agent for the addiction therapy world and and all the others that you spoke of that it's it's infiltrated, which is a good thing. Do you see the future in your lifetime with a lot of this changing, or do you be are you able to affect the industry solidly enough to pass on to the trainers? Or how do you feel about the future of this?
0: Oh, well, it's already happened. The uh, in the addiction treatment in particular uh, when I began in that field in the 1970s, it was really authoritarian, confrontational, shaming. I mean, literally, in some programs, people were wearing toilet seats around their head. There was a comment about you know what you're worth at this point. The shaving of heads, you know, just the uh, attack therapy was the name of one of the treatments that was done, where someone sat in the middle and a circle of people just insult them and and assault them uh, verbally, and that was done believing that's good for people. You know, it it never was. There never was any good science behind that, and most of that's gone. You you can still find authoritarian programs around, but it's changed a great deal. And I'm I'm amazed at, at how much the the climate of addiction treatment has changed over the over the decades. And I vacillate between that and and despair at how far we still have to go, you know? yeah. and both things are true, yeah. that things have changed a lot, and, and also we still have some steps to make in the right direction. But I, I hope if my life makes a contribution, it is the humanizing of of healthcare more generally, not just addiction treatment, but the way in which we are with people who come looking for help with their, with their health.
1: Well, that's that's hopeful. I imagine a founder, as you are a founder of any concept, hopes that they can push that momentum downhill enough yes. to keep it going. This may be off topic, and um, if you don't have an opinion on it, that's fine. But there are people who believe, in, let's say in the cases of veterans, mm-hmm. that them reliving those traumatic moments that have created what we call PTSD, or post-traumatic stress injury, in order to get them past that they need to remember it embrace that moment realize that they're still alive and and get past it Mm -hmm. is that effective
0: i think the problem in that is the have to piece of it there is there is good scientific evidence that exposure-based therapies of helping people to re-experience in some way in a safe environment uh, things that happen to them, is effective. And indeed, avoidance just perpetuates the, the problem. So when you have any kind of a fear, if you just stay away from the thing you're afraid of, the fear gets worse, actually. So the exposure-based therapies were developed as one way to help veterans and are used in veterans' hospitals around the country. It doesn't seem to be the only way. But other things that, that are tried that involve, again, feeling safe, some, some re-experiencing or changing of your, your emotional dynamics around trust, for example. Uh, there are other paths to get there. So uh, it, as with addiction, I don't think there's just one path. I think we we have a choice of different methods. But the one you mentioned, the exposure-based therapy, does have a good track record. But to ask someone to do that when you're the therapist, you better have a good relationship I better have a strong sense of trust that, because you're asking people to do the thing they least want to do, which is is turn and confront the thing that they're afraid of. So it's it's a good way, not the only way.
1: Where do you think join up ways in that in getting in? A, I know it's individualized, but and in, is that sort of reliving it? Is that a parallel? To it, where they're um, forced to actually be trusted, or to build trust in that horse. Mm-hmm.
0: I have to say, I don't know. I, I would want some good science there to understand what's going on physiologically. For example, one of the things that happens in exposure-based therapy is people's arousal. The adrenaline goes up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. If they don't no. run away at the at that moment, at the peak of the fear. But stay with it until it comes down again. That's that's a curative experience in itself. Maybe that's happening in join up. I I don't know. Um, maybe it is on a more abstract level, learning to trust and to be trusted, which was which was not adaptive when you're in Iraq or Afghanistan. You stay alive by not trusting. Period. You know. But when we when warriors come back to civilian life. I think we've done very little to help them make that adjustment. We spend months in basic training, helping them make the transition from civilian life to being a warrior. And the return trip can be just as difficult, but we've just put people on ships or planes or whatever and said, okay, now you're back home. And I think we could and ought to do much more than that. Some, some cultures have even a ritual of welcoming the warrior home profoundly thanking them for what they have done, saying now we need you to be part of c- civilian society again and have a very different role from the one that you've had before. We don't have those kind of transitional rituals, uh, at least not very many of them, uh, to help warriors who are coming home. Uh, and I, I wish we did, because it underestimates how hard that transition is. And we see it in the suicide rates with veterans. We see it in, in the violence rates that emerge, and it doesn't have to be so, yeah, not at all.
1: That's good to hear. Um, some people have suggested that we have boot camps for going off to war before going out to prepare. Yes. But we should have shoe camps yeah. to put us back into the communities again. Some, something some like healthy, that. Healthy perspectives. Yeah. Whether
0: it's just celebrating the return and, and realizing the, the change of role. I, one of my postdocs um, did a study at a, at a Native American pueblo, and they wanted to know what percentage of the men who had gone off to Vietnam still had PTSI. This is 25 years after Vietnam, yeah. and it was like 85%. And why so high? Well, the, the religion of this pueblo is pacifist. Now, these men went off in loyalty to the country that they're part of, but when they came back, they said, I'm, I'm no longer a member of this community. I have violated everything that I was ever taught in, in, in our religion. And they would literally live on the periphery of the community, so alienated. And of course, lots of drinking and, and deaths on the highway and horrible, horrible history. But what about the 15%? And and my colleagues discovered that the 15% who were not drinking, drugging, uh, suffering with PTSD, were people who were members of a particular clan that by virtue just of reaching a certain age, you're now expected to become part of the secret religious society. And so at that age, through no merit of their own, just by virtue of who they are. They have a responsibility to become part of the central, most respected religious society in the community and to perform duties, regular duties, for the welfare of the whole community. In six months, the PTSI is gone. The drinking is gone. They now have not a peripheral role, but a central role in their community again. And it, it's making that kind of transition that I think we've not been very good at helping warriors to do.
1: So there are processes that we can implement. At oh, least yes. we're seeing some demonstrated, yeah. Perfect. Oh, yes. Perfect. Last question I have is you touched this week at the movement. You touched on trans-species spirituality. <laughs> yes. I think that's such a fascinating yeah. title. Yeah, yeah. Give us a thumbnail of that. I know that's hard.
0: Well, I mean, God didn't just create people; you know, God created everything that's here, you know. And so, in in some sense, everything around us is some reflection of God, is some in some way a connection or a part of God. And and we've gotten very anthrocentric, I think that uh, nothing really was happening until human beings came along. So the the first billions of years, you know. God was just waiting for people to appear and form religious denominations, and then things are okay, you know. Well, that's crazy, you know. And just to sense that loving kindness, which is how I understand the essential nature of God, is also what we're meant to do, and not just with other human beings, but with creation, with animals, and and to, to love the the world and and protect it as well. Uh, And so it it makes perfect sense to me that spirituality is not something that is like a cool human thing. And only humans uh, are part of this experience. I mean, God created it all. And we're a part, not as big a part as we sometimes think, of all of that creation. So it, 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 but it was one of the things that struck me the first time I saw Monty work, which is, it's that same loving, respectful, autonomy honoring uh, way of being with another creature now, St Francis is famous for having done that for you know, regarding animals to be relatives you know and and native and native people do the same that we're we're related in some way. i you know, I don't understand the mystery of that, but I, I enjoy experiences that help me to experience that mystery.
1: Very uh. nice, very nice. It was, it was great insight. I think a lot of horse owners, spiritual or otherwise, call a horse a very sentient be- being. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's the quality of horses, the flight animal, really. Mm-hmm. The qualities that humans can learn a lot from. We, we are a carnivore typically, Mm -hmm. unless we happen to be a vegan, but we pretty much have those instincts of a predator. And to learn those, the vast qualities, really, of the flight animal that have Mm -hmm. survived a lot longer than we have Mm -hmm. seems to be where our pursuits we're learning the most in right now. So I'm glad you had that perspective for us, too. It adds one more element to it that I like.
0: Well, and I respect Monty's teaching that we, no one has the right to say to another creature, you do what I want or I will hurt you. That happens far too much, even human to human, but we don't have that right with animals either.
1: Thank you for joining us today on Horsemanship Radio. I appreciate it.
0: Real pleasure. Thank you.
4: Whisper
3: the language of the herd Listen, you don't have to say a word
2: it's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty.
6: Leave this world a better place than mine. The magic
3: in the language of the earth.
6: Dear Monty, I have a nine-year-old Missouri foxtrotter that seems to stumble quite a bit while being ridden in the pasture or on a road, yet is very sure-footed on trails. I read that having the cinch or the girth too tight could cause this. Is it possible he is bored and just not paying attention? Monty's answer. I don't think he is bored and I don't believe the problem is a result of anything that was done to him in the past or the cinch is too tight. I think you should take a hard look at the surfaces you are riding on and possibly have the veterinarian check for arthritic potential. Early arthritic changes often compromise the horse's range of motion. If surfaces are slightly uneven, this can easily cause stumbling. If early arthritic changes are evident, it is possible to assist your horse by amending how his feet are trimmed and shod. There are also many substances available today that will assist your horse in overcoming the problems of a compromised range of motion. Glucosamine and chondroitin, as well as glucosamine sulfate, are often suggested these days. Also, many horse people use hyaluronic acid, which is a substance of choice for many of the joint problems of today. This substance is available in both injectable and ingestible forms as their treatment of choice for joint problems. I have used all of the above with favorable results. However, I am not a veterinarian and would advise you seek the opinion of a good equine practitioner who will be able to tailor the treatment of your particular problem. I would not choose to speculate on the best course of action without seeing the horse and listening to the advice of a good vet. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go
1: to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips.
0: Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com.
6: What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here?
0: Where in the world is Monty Roberts?
1: Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. July twenty-two through twenty-six, we've got a Monty special training in Portuguese. People are coming from all over, but mostly Brazil. And then July twenty-nine through August second, we have Monty special training in California. That's right there at the school at the Monty Roberts International Learning Center in Solvang, California. And August fifth through sixteenth, we have what Jen is now calling her favorite: the Gentling Wild Horses course, or that is also in California at Flag is Up Farms. And that's the one that Denise was talking about in this this interview that we did with her. So I hope people will give us a ring. Where do they do that, Jen?
2: They do that at 805-688-6288. And you can also find this information and a whole lot more at com. Lovely website over there. And for details about this episode, you can go to HorsemanshipRadio.com. You're going to find links and pictures and more information about today's guests and topics. And we love your feedback. How do we think up what guests and topics to talk about? Well, we get a lot of help from you guys, our listeners. Go to Facebook, look up Monty Roberts, click on the one with the little blue circle. That's the official page. Like it and follow it. And put in there what topics or interesting people that you have come across in the equinasphere that you think would be cool to have on the show. And Monty Roberts is a modern kind of guy, so he also tweets. That's right. It's Monty <laughs> underscore Roberts. And the latest and the greatest in social media is on Instagram. I think that's your favorite, yeah, isn't it, Debbie. It is. It's square, you know? So. <laughs> square it's even on all four sides that's right in your wheelhouse exactly (laughs)
1: don't throw any curves in them no curves no
2: rectangles (laughs) it's all the same on every side
1: (laughs) it's beautiful actually we have a really cool people should go look now we have a really cool storyline going on with two horses called coffee and cream these were wild completely untouched horses off the mountaintop that we've been Coffee and you. Cream.
2: Well, now you've got me intrigued. I'm going to have to go over to Instagram and check out Coffee and Cream.
1: They're so cute. Yeah,
2: I think you can tell. They're pretty wild. There we go. And you you can do that and more. If you have, We have a whole bunch of shows here on the Horse Radio Network and Horsemanship Radio. Great fun. You can have that on your phone wherever you go if you're not mm-hmm. listening to it that way already. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you have an iPhone or an Android. You can download the free Horse Radio Network app, and you can choose to w- listen to just Horsemanship Radio. You can choose to listen to Horsemanship Radio and Horse Tip Daily. You can choose to listen to all 14 shows. It's your option. The whole thing is free and easy to use. That's right. Go right now. And let me just put this little bug in your ear. For the less tech-savvy folks in your life, download it to their phone for them. They will thank you.
1: And be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com.
2: And many thanks to our sponsors. They are Omega Fields, Cavallo, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Equus Online University. Couldn't do it without them.
1: That's true. Thank you. Until next time, have many happy horse hours.